The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is my daughter. This is my baby. This is my reason for living. Without her, I can't breathe. I can't function. Be yourself. We've all heard it before. Encouragement to get out into the world and embrace our uniqueness. It sounds delightful, almost poetic. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple for most of us. In a world where we are constantly told who to be, forced to compare our lives to celebrities, TikTok influencers, or get-rich-quick gurus on social media, anxiety can easily and readily set in. Many of us have had that little voice in the back of our head that tends to show up uninvitedly, telling us that we are simply not good enough as ourselves. First and foremost, make no mistake, you are good enough. It's perfectly normal to have these feelings of doubt from time to time. Hell, we've all been there, even the most confident of people. In a culture that's become so obsessed with being perfect or being the prettiest or most successful, one could argue that it is quite possibly more difficult to be one's actual true self now more than ever. With all of these peripheral distractions deterring us, how do we acknowledge and answer those crucial existential questions, like who am I and what will make me happy? Think about it. Our dopamine receptors tell us one thing, that consume plus purchase will inevitably equal eternal joy. But you see, that math can never be correct, because it is not a sustainable equation. That flood of serotonin from buying the $40,000 truck or taking the three-week destination vacation will dry up quicker than you can say the word Instagram. So what is the answer? Well, it's hard to say, as happiness is different for everyone. But every now and again, it's important to stop and reflect on where we're at currently and ask if we are truly satisfied with the way things are going. And on the opposite spectrum, there are people lucky enough to know exactly who they are and what they want out of life from a very young age. They've also got the confidence to back it up. Those people are special, and that quality is nothing short of a gift. Regardless, one thing is for certain. In this day and age, seemingly everyone has the right to freely express themselves as they see fit and are actually encouraged to do so if it reconnects them with their own sense of happiness and identity. But not everyone places that same ideological sanctity on freedom of expression that they do, say, on freedom of speech. Where some claim that identity is a broad spectrum, others draw much firmer boundaries. And when hatred becomes part of that delineation, we all have to be a little more careful of who we run into. Because even in the year 2022, whether we want to believe it or not, 
people still wind up dead for simply being different. It was the year 2001, and on July 6th, a beautiful, healthy child had just been born in Vancouver, Washington, just outside of Portland, Oregon. That baby boy was named Nicholas Kuhnhausen, and his mother, Lisa Woods, was over the moon with joy. Nicholas was a happy baby as soon as he entered the world, but it didn't take long for his mother, Lisa, to realize that her son wasn't like most other little boys. They called him Nicky, but even as a toddler, Lisa knew deep down that Nick didn't quite feel like a boy at all. She had been Nikki behind closed doors since she was two years old, and she had Hannah Montana and high heels and makeup, and uh, uh, we would buy her girls clothes. Lisa remembers when the spelling of Nikki, N-I-C-K-Y, changed to Nikki, N-I-K-K-I, very early on. Nikki knew who she was, and that person had always been female. She was Nikki with an I from there on out. The first day of sixth grade, she came out Nikki, and she was Nikki ever since, and she was full of confidence, and people were drawn to her. Lisa explains that that's just the way it was. The love for her child never changed. It made no difference. It was around middle school when Nikki really started to come into her own. Her family remembers when she discovered the pop artist Nicki Minaj around this time. Nicki Kuhnhausen was obsessed. Her brother pinpoints this as the moment his sister gained the courage to come out as transgender publicly. Nicki Minaj's music empowered the younger Nicki Kuhnhausen. She became inspired and set a goal for herself. She wanted to become her favorite rapper and singer's makeup artist one day. Nikki began using TikTok as a creative form of expression, making lip sync and dance videos to some of Minaj's tunes. She too had dreams of being a star just like her idol, and Nikki was unapologetically her charismatic and vivacious self. She just radiated love. She came in contact with a lot of people, and it was it was all ages all communities, all walks of life, the homeless, the, you know, CEOs, the, you know, she, she could fit in anywhere and bring something to the situation that left them feeling good about themselves. Caring is a word many used to describe her, but as much as she was compassionate, she was equally resilient. And quite frankly, she had to be. See, Nikki didn't have the easiest childhood. Though she had a great relationship with her mother, Lisa suffers from severe anxiety, as well as a difficult history of substance abuse. Nikki and her siblings were forced to grow up fast. Lisa will be the first to admit that a lot of times, it was Nikki taking care of her, instead of the other way around. On top of this, Nikki's brother Alex had more than a few run-ins with the law, and he'd just recently been sent to prison and was currently serving time for possession of a stolen vehicle. This was hard on Nikki. She loved her brother dearly, and during these difficult times, she used social media as an outlet 
escaping the trials and tribulations of a rocky home life. Through song and dance showcased online, Nikki began to amass somewhat of a following, though her mother says she wasn't always honest with the people viewing her content. I told her that it wasn't right for her to put her age at 21 when she was only 17 and get men who are in their 40s and 30s to make comments about how beautiful she is because she's way more beautiful than that and her beauty shouldn't shine through men's comments like that. Nikki Fox was the moniker she chose and she began to relish in the recognition she was garnering online, particularly that from older men. But Nikki wasn't even 18 years old and for obvious reasons, this concerned her mother. That's not where her self-esteem and beauty should come from. But she loved the attention. She, she wanted to be Facebook famous. Despite her mother's concerns, Nikki wasn't worried. She assured Lisa that everything was fine and that she was just having some fun online. Their relationship was unique. They were more like best friends than a conventional mother-daughter pair. In fact, they spoke every day. And that's when Lisa messaged her daughter the afternoon of June 6, 2019. Her anxiety soon began to rise when she didn't get a response. And when she didn't answer my messages on June 6, I knew something was wrong. I clocked in at 2 and she hadn't answered my messages. It had been all morning. At 4 o'clock on my first break, no response. At lunch, I knew in my stomach something was wrong. But I knew when she didn't call me that day, that was the first time in 17 years we hadn't talked. And I knew something was wrong. By the time Nikki's mother got home from work later that evening, she still hadn't heard from her daughter. Lisa attempted to convince herself that everything was fine and that Nikki was probably just out with her friend somewhere. Perhaps her imagination was just getting the best of her. But as that window of possibility started to close, and the hours lapsed into the following days, true panic began to set in. Nikki was known for consistently creating content for social media. Her TikTok and Facebook videos were literally uploaded every day like clockwork. So when Nikki went completely silent online with no activity whatsoever, this was one more indication that something was terribly wrong. After what had surely felt like an eternity, Lisa finally decided to file an official missing persons report five days after Nikki had first gone missing, on June 10, 2019. Investigators began following what few leads they had, and with the help of friends and family, tips eventually led authorities to Nikki's friends Tiffany and Faith's apartment. It turns out Nikki had been staying with the two at the time she was last seen. They told authorities that they too hadn't heard from Nikki in the past five days. They said all they knew was that she was talking to some guy on Snapchat and that she had left to hang out with him and simply never returned. The battery on Nikki's personal device was dead at the time, so she had borrowed one of her friend's cell phones to communicate with this person through Snapchat before she took off. When Tiffany and Faith were asked if they knew who this man was, they said they did not. The only information they had regarding this person was that he was a, quote, older Russian guy and that he drove a van. This was based solely on what Nikki had told them just before she walked out the door. 
after finding out that Nikki Kuhnhausen was a transgendered 17-year-old. The sense of urgency increased for law enforcement. The reason being that trans individuals statistically are four times more susceptible to becoming victims of violent crimes in these types of scenarios. For perspective, the human rights campaign tracked the deaths of 26 transgender or non-gender conforming people who died as a result of homicidal violence in the United States just the year before in 2018. These numbers were not lost on law enforcement who were desperately trying to locate Nikki Kuhnhausen. A Vancouver teen is missing and believed to be in danger. Police say no one's heard from her since the beginning of this month. She was last seen getting into a man's car near Fourth Plain Boulevard and Brandt Road. That's where Fox 12's Audrey Wheel joins us live. Audrey? Yeah, this is 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen, and family, friends, and investigators are all desperate to find her. They've passed out about 500 of these flyers, hoping someone can help. The flyer held up by the reporter in this local newscast read as follows. Have you seen me? Missing from Vancouver, Washington. Nikki G. Kuhnhausen, missing June 5th, 2019. Birthday, July 6th, 2001. Went missing at 17 years old. Identifies as female. Height, 5'8". Weight, 120 pounds. Race, Caucasian. Eye color, hazel. Hair black at times with extensions. Tattoos, scars, and piercings. Semicolon tattoo on one of her wrists. She has many scars, including on legs, thumb, stomach, thigh, and neck. These flyers were plastered to nearly every Starbucks, liquor store, and telephone pole in the city. And if you asked any local in Vancouver, Washington during this time frame, they would tell you there wasn't a place you could go without seeing Nikki's face with the words, Have you seen me? plastered above her photo. But there was still no sign of Nikki, and time only continued to pass. She missed her high school graduation, something she would never intentionally do. By this point, Nikki's mother didn't know what to think, and her mental health was in an increasingly fragile state, becoming more vulnerable by the day with worry of her daughter's well-being. Lisa was only left to ponder the horrible possibilities she had created in her head of what might have happened to Nikki. The only word to describe what Lisa must have been going through is torture. She's being prevented from contacting me. She is being held in some situation where she cannot reach me because that's all she's trying to do right now. She's screaming for me. She's calling out my name. And I don't know where she is. And I can't get to her. At this time, there was no evidence to either confirm nor deny what Lisa was saying. But at the very least in this scenario, Nikki was alive. And as her mother, she needed to keep that sense of hope alive as well. With that being said, this line of thinking wasn't completely arbitrary and out of the blue. As the investigation progressed, more facts regarding Nikki Kuhnhausen's past were brought to light, and it soon became clear that the 17-year-old's life was actually far more troubled than what she had presented online. The policeman excused himself because he got a call in his walkie. And he came back and he asked me if I'd ever heard of a place called The Compound on 63rd Street. I said, no, what's that? Well, that was a detective vice from sex trafficking 
and prostitution, and he recognized Nikki's name on the missing persons radio as being red flagged from there. I said, what does that mean, red flagged? Well, she'd been picked up from there many times, so her name's red flagged. And she wasn't arrested? No, she was underage. We took, <coughs> we took her home. I go, how long has this been going on? Well, the first one was eight months ago. I go, well, you didn't bring her home to me, so where did you take her? Well, she said her mom lived in Clackamas. We took her out there. Well, so you dropped my minor daughter off at someone and you didn't ID them? Because you never brought her home to her mother. Because I'll tell you what, Nikki representing herself in that world as a girl and not telling the truth would get her killed. Roughly eight months prior to Nikki's disappearance, she'd been picked up by police. She had been caught for soliciting prostitution on more than one occasion. Being that she was a minor, she was never arrested. Instead, she was dropped off at an address Nikki claimed was her mother's house. But according to Lisa, the address police brought Nikki to was more than likely a friend of hers. Lisa claims she had no idea Nikki was a sex worker until the investigation into her disappearance began. Investigators also learned that her mother Lisa had kicked Nikki out of her home within the last year due to her struggling with a methamphetamine addiction. Around the same time in 2018, Nikki had also been a victim of an armed robbery and subsequent shooting. Nikki herself was shot during that attack, a total of six times. The entire thing a result of an alleged drug deal gone wrong. After a lengthy stay in the hospital, somehow Nikki would walk away from the incident without any life-altering injuries. In fact, she made a remarkable full recovery after all six bullets missed her major arteries and vital organs. Her mother was aware of the shooting when it occurred, but Lisa wondered if the gunman might just have come back to finish what he had started. She survived being shot six times in the car and he threw her out of the car over in Portland and left her to die. The first house she went to wouldn't open the door for her. She crawled to the next house and she made it through. Six times she was shot. It's obviously a miracle she survived this ordeal in the first place. Nikki did know the shooter, but in fear for her own safety, she chose not to identify him to the police. All of these new findings regarding Nikki's background only gave authorities more cause for concern that her life was undoubtedly in danger. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The investigation had fallen to a standstill. There were no new leads, but the sole focus was still identifying the, quote, older Russian male, the man presumed to have been the last person to communicate with Nikki Kuhnhausen. 
On June 27, 2019, the Digital Evidence Cybercrime Unit subpoenaed an emergency search warrant to Snapchat and was able to obtain Nikki's records that very same day. Authorities now had the data they needed to find out who exactly Nikki had been communicating with in the moments leading up to her disappearance. Only one username came back relative to the timeline her friends had corroborated, and Nikki's very last digital footprints led them directly to one man, an individual named David Bogdanov. So who is David Bogdanov? Well, for starters, he was in fact the last person who had spoken to Nikki, on paper at least. The Snapchat records proved that definitively. But how did they actually know each other? After digging a bit more into Bogdanov's background, it turns out he was an older Russian guy, just like Nikki's friends had suggested. He was 25 years old and stood at 6 feet 2 inches tall, just over 200 pounds. His family were Russian immigrants, most of whom currently resided in Vancouver, Washington, including David himself. David was also the first of his family born in the United States. Bogdanov was a construction worker by trade, but that's about all the authorities had on him at the time. He didn't have any significant criminal history. Naturally, the police needed to locate this individual to learn more, and if anyone knew what happened to Nikki Kuhnhausen, David Bogdanov more than likely held that information. It had been 22 days since Nikki was last seen, and authorities had tried to make contact with David Bogdanov at his brother Archer's apartment on June 28th. When David's brother answered the door, he was quick to tell investigators that he had no knowledge of a Nikki Kuhnhausen, nor did he know where his brother was. Detectives then questioned David's other brother, Stan, but he too responded with a similar story. It was difficult to decipher whether or not they were telling the truth, but detectives left each brother with a card, along with a verbal message requesting that David give them a call as soon as possible. After virtually all of their attempts to reach him had been fruitless, they figured they'd try one more method of communication they knew he was partial to, Snapchat. Police sent David several direct messages on the app, all of which went unanswered. One reason he may not have been responding, however, was that David apparently purchased a new phone just recently. Another reason David couldn't be located was because he wasn't even in the Vancouver area, or the North American continent for that matter. Law enforcement eventually learned that just hours after David's last documented exchange with Nikki on Snapchat the morning she disappeared, he booked a one-way ticket to Ukraine and fled the country. On July 31, 2019, detectives obtained a warrant for David Bogdanov's cell phone and his geolocation data, but these records wouldn't be fully analyzed until much later on. Meanwhile, Nikki's family was left in limbo months would go by without any indication of where Nikki was or what might have happened to her. In September of that year, authorities finally got a response from one of the men they had been trying to get in touch with the entire time. David Bogdanov finally responded to one of the digital crime unit's Snapchat messages. He replied by typing something to the effect of, Sorry, I've been having phone troubles. Trying their best to keep the conversation light so as not to scare Bogdanov into ceasing all communication, 
Investigators on the other end were successfully able to convince him to come in to speak with them. And that meeting would finally occur on October 2nd, 2019, roughly four months after Nikki had gone missing. By the time authorities were able to sit down with David, they'd already had a laundry list of questions lined up that clearly required some immediate responses. During this interview, David surprisingly offered up a lot of information voluntarily. He admitted that he was with Nikki the morning of June 6th and claimed that they had met for the first time after bumping into each other on Main Street in Vancouver. David and his two brothers had been out at the bars all night, and according to David, all three men were heavily intoxicated, which might have explained why Archer and Stan couldn't remember Nikki. David went on to explain that he gave Nikki a bottle of vodka he had on his person as well as his jacket because she looked cold. He said they exchanged contact information and then parted ways, but eventually met up again later that same morning. After providing a relatively vague recollection of events in question, Bogdanov finishes by claiming that he and Nikki eventually came to be alone in his brother's work van. It was at this point Nikki allegedly revealed to David that she was, in fact, transgender. After learning this, David said he promptly asked Nikki to exit the vehicle and requested that she leave. He said Nikki got out and walked away on foot and claimed that he never saw her again. What struck investigators as odd right away, however, was just how upset David seemed when recalling the moment he discovered Nikki was biologically a male. When explaining this portion of the story to detectives, he showed a visible discomfort and used words like shocked, disturbed, and even disgusting when referring to the admission Nikki had made to him. For me, it's even disturbing when I'm around like a gay person or somebody bi or transsexual or something else. I just got disgusted and I asked her to just get out. As much as detectives believed there was more to the story than he was letting on, the so-called red flags alone weren't enough to make an arrest. I wish I could help you more, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not the kind of person to... I'm not even a violent person at all, you know? Nothing. Therefore, with no physical evidence tying Bogdanov to a crime, he was free to leave. A few days later, the results of that search warrant on David's phone came back. As expected, the evidence on his device showed some grave inconsistencies from the story he provided to detectives. After analyzing the data, it was discovered that David made a phone call to an adult video store at around 4 a.m. He then made numerous calls to female escort services around that same time, and at around 4.51 a.m., David sent the first Snapchat message initiating the conversation between he and Nikki Kuhnhausen. During their initial interview, David also told investigators that after departing from Nikki, he went to a job site in downtown Portland, Oregon, but his cell phone records did not back up that claim. Instead, around 8 a.m., David's cell phone coordinates placed him in the area of his brother Arthur's apartment near Main Street in Vancouver. The most curious data point of all, however, was that at around 9 a.m. on June 6th, the GPS data showed that David traveled roughly an hour away to a remote area in northeast Clark County, near Larch Mountain. Then at around 10 a.m., his phone put David arriving back at his brother's apartment. 
Bogdanov made no mention of this trip up north to investigators. And unfortunately, even with this new information, it still wasn't enough to make an arrest. After several months and still no signs of any substantial progress, a sense of helplessness loomed heavily over Vancouver, Washington. As a whole, its citizens had become so emotionally invested by now, believing they would have found the 17-year-old. Sadly, everyone slowly began considering the fact that this case very well could go cold. As fall turned to winter in 2019, Nikki Kuhnhausen was still nowhere to be found. Six long months had passed. Missing persons flyers were now faded and torn from the frigid Pacific Northwest air. Nikki's loved ones were at a complete loss. Her mother Lisa eventually broke down entirely and was admitted to a mental health facility for an extended period of time. The overwhelming stress of not knowing where her daughter was for this long was simply too much to bear. I didn't know if she was being held against her will in the sex trafficking industry and drugged and made to do things that were horrible. I didn't know if she was being shipped to another country. I didn't know if they had left her laying in a ditch and did horrible things to her like I read. I had no idea, but I had nightmares. I had nightmares about the facts. The articles were real about other transgenders that had been murdered. My fears and my visions and my, and my nightmares were true stories. And for six months, I prayed that that wasn't what was happening. And after months and months of not knowing, Lisa Wood's greatest fears would inevitably come true on December 7th, 2019. While a hiker was foraging for bear grass during a cold and rainy day up on Larch Mountain, he came across a human skull. After reporting the finding to authorities and over the course of the following days, more human remains would be discovered, spread across the vast mountainous landscape. Forensic crime scene units collected various pieces of jewelry along with a green jacket. Investigators early on were fairly certain that these were the remains of Nikki Kuhnhausen, but due to the elements, it was hard to be sure. Their suspicions would be put to rest, however, once and for all, after Nikki's social media profiles were meticulously analyzed. It was determined that the recovered jewelry and the jacket found were all a match, as seen worn in several of Nikki's Facebook photos and TikTok videos. But perhaps the most profound piece of evidence discovered on Larch Mountain may have actually been a phone cord. A long black charging wire that had been wrapped in a lasso noose-like fashion, discovered with a small clump of hair still clinging to the cable. This evidence was tested and inevitably came back from the Washington State Crime Lab as a match to that of 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen. The medical examiner determined that Nikki's death came the result of manual strangulation. The cell phone cable found near her remains was believed to have been the murder weapon. Nikki's brother Alex was still in prison for the larceny charge when he learned his sister had been killed. He was taken away from his cell and brought into an office where he was delivered the tragic news. After notifying Nikki's immediate family, the obvious next order of business was bringing David Bogdanov in for a second round of questioning. Only this time, he wouldn't be so talkative. 
Catch you some water here, so we're gonna we're gonna take the handcuffs off you. All right. Uh, do you understand that this uh, room is being audio and video recorded? Sure. This interview took place on December seventeenth, twenty nineteen. The news of Nikki's death was officially made public that same day. Investigators were quick to confront David Bogdanov with the incriminating evidence that lay before him. So before we before we go on, he's basically summarized everything that you guys talked about. Is there anything that you want to revise before we continue on? I mean, you might have stopped by the gas station. Okay. So at, at the time that we talked, I didn't have uh, the benefit of all of your your phone records. Okay, but but now there's been some initial analysis done. Okay. So you left your phone left Archer's house and then went east, out past March Mountain. David suddenly goes silent for several minutes. You didn't just go to work, did you? I think I want to talk to work. Okay, all right. It's somewhat hard to make out, but David says, I think I want to talk to a lawyer. While it was David Bogdanov's legal right to request an attorney, unfortunately for him, he would have to wait for those arrangements to be made while sitting behind bars. So I understand that you're being arrested today for the murder of Nikki Kudasa, whose remains have been discovered, okay, who was strangled to death, okay. So we're going to put you back in handcuffs, all right? Stand up for me, please. David Bogdanov was arrested. The following day, Vancouver police held an official press conference. They provided the specifics surrounding the remains found, along with the name of the man who was being charged with this homicide. So our victim in this case is Nicholas, or Nikki Kuhnhausen, uh, born July 6th of 2001. We received a report on June 10th of this year by her mother, Lisa Woods, and we were told that Nikki was missing and rarely went more than a day without contacting her mother. Um, and as we worked that case, we uh, caught probably the biggest break when a citizen on December 7th of this year, walking in the large mountain area, came across a human skull. Uh, based on the location of the remains and the earlier obtained evidence, uh, detectives decided to attempt a second interview with David we attempted contact with him yesterday, and he uh, declined to, to give any further statements. At that point, he was arrested for second-degree murder. Bogdanov was arraigned and held without bail at the Clark County Jail. A few days later, a vigil was held for Nikki at the Vancouver Church of Christ. There wasn't an empty seat among the entire congregation. Friends, family, and allies of Nikki's all lined the church walls. Standing room quickly became limited as well. Here, members of the National Women's Coalition Against Violence and Exploitation would speak, not only on Nikki's behalf, but on behalf of the gay and trans community as well. We all deserve a world free of violence, no matter our differences, to not be killed for the person we want to be. While Bogdanov awaited trial, a group named the Justice for Nikki Kuhnhausen Task Force was born. This collective was formed to help bring awareness to Nikki's tragic case 
but also to shed a light on a root issue, violent deaths within the gay and trans community, numbers that are undeniably staggering in America. The goal of the organization was to make noise. They demanded to be heard. They made their presence known for Nikki at every single bail hearing, court appearance, and media opportunity that presented itself. An example of why this group's efforts were so necessary came on January 2, 2020, when a Clark County judge minimized Bogdanov's bail restrictions due to his apparent lack of criminal history. His new bail was set for $750,000, and members of Nikki's task force found this number to be unacceptable. They showed up to the courthouse in mass that following day, protesting in great numbers to express their discontent with Judge David Gregerson's decision. We worked six and a half months on looking for Nikki Kuhnhausen. And this man, who chose to dispose of her like trash, strangle her with her own hair, and leave her for no one to find her for six and a half months, watched as we all spent resources, tax dollars, and everything, media attention, everything, to looking for her missing daughter, and they never called in even a tip to say, yeah, you could find her there. That's premeditation in my estimate, and it's also a hate crime in my estimate. Nikki Kuhnhausen did not get justice today. Nikki was a beautiful young lady that everybody loved. Michelle Bart, president of the National Women's Coalition Against Violence and Exploitation, stood alongside Nikki's mother, Lisa, while delivering this emotional message to the media. Several others spoke as well. Eventually, not just the word of Nikki's death, but the perceived leniency of Bogdanov's bail went viral online as well. Members of the LGBTQ community from all over began to express their outrage on social media. Evidently, this disruption would garner the appropriate attention. Days later, Bogdanov's charges were updated. In addition to the existing second-degree murder charge, one count of malicious harassment was added, which is effectively Washington State's version of a hate crime. What this meant was that Bogdanov would more than likely be facing a harsher sentence. How harsh? Well, that was still a question of great concern. You may have also asked yourself by now why there was no statutory rape charge presented in this case, being that Nikki was just 17 years old when she was killed. Well, in the state of Washington, the age of consent is 16. Therefore, this charge would not be imposed. Additional progress that was made, however, at least in part, by the Justice for Nikki task force would come months later. On March 20, 2020, David Bogdanov's bail was raised to $2 million, which ensured a level of certainty that Nikki's accused killer wouldn't walk free before his trial, which was effectively scheduled to begin on August 16, 2021. David Bogdanov and his defense team would not deny that he murdered Nikki Kuhnhausen. They would not deny that he disposed of her body and evaded police in the months following her death. 
Instead, Bogdanov would tell the court that he killed Nikki in self-defense. Not only would the alleged roll the dice by participating in a jury trial, he would also make the brazen decision to take the stand himself. The world was still wondering how and why Nikki had been killed, and David Bogdanov would provide his recollection of events, but not before divulging some pretty telling information regarding his general outlook on gay and trans people. The state offered testimony through your girlfriend, or your ex-girlfriend, Anessa, where they talked about you and her in the mall, where she said that you observed either a gay couple or heterosexual, something, or gay, bisexual, or transsexual couple. And you remarked to her that it was disgusting. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so do you find homosexual activity disgusting then? Um... Keep in mind that this is Bogdanov's attorney asking him these questions at the moment. By taking the stand, however, David Bogdanov opened himself up to cross-examination by the prosecution, which we'll hear in just a bit. We're just standing, sitting in the car parked on the road and saw Nikki Nikki walking across the street by herself. Okay, did you approach her? Yes, I did. I told my brother to wait in the car and... I went and and approached Nikki by myself. David explains that at around 3 a.m., after drinking all night with his two brothers, he saw Nikki from Stan's passenger van. He gets out and approaches her and gives her the bottle of vodka as well as his jacket. He goes on to explain the exchanging of Snapchat information and the potential of meeting up again, and then later sitting in the car with Nikki. Those details have not changed in David's story, for the most part. After he came back to the vehicle from using the restroom, Nikki had allegedly moved from the passenger seat to the back seat. What Bogdanov reveals next are the crucial details he conveniently left out in his previous interviews with police. I opened my driver's door and saw that Nikki was moved to the back seat now in the back of the car. Okay, and what was Nikki doing at that point? She was smoking something out of a pipe. Can you describe what the pipe looked like? It was just a short glass pipe. Okay. Is there anything else you could describe about it, such as smell, look, anything um, else? Yeah, it smelled really, really strange, um, like battery acid or like when if electronics get fried, or wired or something, it's just this like chemically smell. It's important to mention at this juncture in the case that he and Nikki are now in the back of his own vehicle, an Audi A8L. This vehicle had never been mentioned previously to investigators during their initial interviews. David claims Nikki began smoking meth from a glass pipe in the backseat of his car. He thought it was strange, but wasn't going to make a big deal about it, according to him. David also has his license to carry, and stated that he almost always has a concealed firearm on his person. David's luxury vehicle was also reportedly brought to a chop shop and destroyed after the incident while Bogdanov fled to Ukraine. What you're about to hear next might help explain why he decided to put an $80,000 car in the crusher. Well, she invited me to come sit in the back. I uh, removed my gun. I, I, I told her that I conceal carry and uh, I have a concealed carry permit and, and so that she doesn't freak out or anything. And I, uh, I reached in and wedged the gun between the center console and the driver's seat kind of pulled the seat back and just 
wedged it there is where I oftentimes had it. So if I'm sitting in the driver's seat, it's right by my knee. I uh, sat in the back seat. So what happens next? You're in the back seat with Nikki, the two of you. What happens next? We chatted for a little bit. <clears throat> okay. How long did that last? A couple minutes. A minute. Okay. And what proceeded from there? Uh, that transitioned into us making out. Okay. And so by making out, what do you mean? Exchange of saliva. So kissing? Yes. With tongue? Yes. Is there touching or anything else? Where was she touching you? While testifying, David reaches for a tissue as he begins to tear up and sniffle. She started touching me um, in my private area. Okay. So, how long does this last? Really short. Okay. Um, what happens next? I, uh, un uh, unbuckle my pants and kind of pull them down a little bit. Okay, how far do you pull your pants down? Like mid-thigh. Okay. And have you exposed your, your penis? Yes. Okay. What happens next? She engages in uh, giving me oral sex. Okay. This was the very first time many of those present in the courtroom that day had heard anything regarding a sexual encounter. What happens next? I... I uh, reach over as she's bent over. I reach over and put my hand in her pants. Okay. You kind of tell me about that. What do you feel when you put your hands in her pants? I worked around the layer, layers of clothing and felt what was clearly balls and penis. Okay. During the passionate sexual encounter, David discovers that Nikki is in fact biologically male. What's going through your mind at that point? I was in shock. I had just been deceived. So what'd you do next? I freak out and I uh, push her, push her back, push her back towards the passenger's door. Bogdanov instantly flies into a fit of rage. But he doesn't ask Nikki to leave. Instead, a physical altercation breaks out inside of the car. And they just start freaking out, saying, you know, what the fuck? What is this? You didn't tell me you're a dude. Started, started yelling at her to just uh, said she, she's a disgusting, disgusting piece of, piece of crap. I, I, was tell, I, was, I was trying to pull my pants back up, and I was telling her to... Get, get the hell out of my car. She lunges at me and hits me across the face. I shove her, shove her kind of hard. I turn and push her back to her driver's seat and I keep telling her to just get the fuck out of my car. He says after physically throwing Nikki to the front of the car, she allegedly tries to reach for his gun that had been wedged between the center console and the seat. I'm thinking, you know, I just was deceived by this person into oral sex, and this person's high on meth. She's jumping for my gun. At this point, the 
overwhelming feeling and thought was the kind of fight or flight mode just kicks in. And all I can think is, oh my God, I'm going to get shot right now. Bogdanov claimed he feared for his life, so he grabbed a phone charging cable and began to strangle Nikki. In, the, in that struggle, I, I, I grabbed that cable and put it around her and so I can hold on to it and pull her back like that and hold her, hold her from, from going, keep going forward for the gun. From the back seat, David Bogdanov choked 120-pound Nikki Kuhnhausen with the charging cable until she was dead. He claims he was only trying to restrain Nikki from grabbing his gun, but the cable inadvertently slipped from her chest up to her neck. He then goes on to explain how he panicked, knowing that he had just killed someone. He then tells the court what his line of thinking was in the moments immediately following. She wasn't waking up. And I started... I tried to check if she's breathing, you know. Was she? No. And I'm scared and I don't know what to do. Um, I First thing I think is I need to call the police. And, and then I think that they're not going to believe me. You know, I've been up all night, not sober. Um, there's drugs in the car. There's a dead person in the back seat. Yeah, I just didn't think they're going to believe me. Here's a prime example of why taking the stand in your own defense, especially in a murder trial, is extremely risky. When answering questions from his own attorney, Bogdanov continues to reveal character traits and beliefs that only seem to backfire on his defense, revealing his true colors. Because this was a very humiliating thing that happened to me at first, and I was I was just scared. I didn't didn't want my family to know. I just wanted to put this behind me, like wishing it was it never happened. The only sign of emotion Bogdanov shows is when he speaks about his family disowning him and the apparent humiliation he feels for having had a sexual encounter with a transgender person. He displays no sense of remorse in regards to actually taking another human life. Instead, he refers to the aftermath of his crime as something he'd simply prefer to, quote, put behind him. Bogdanov was familiar with Larch Mountain, as he'd shot targets in the woods in that remote area some time before. Ultimately, he thought this would be the best place to dump the 17-year-old's body just after killing her. What, else, what other options did you consider at that point? At that point, I thought I need to get rid of the body. Did you drive up there yourself? Yes. Okay. And when you got up there, what did you do? I pulled her, pulled her out of the car and... It was that spot by the road. The hill just went down really steep. I just kind of pushed her, pushed her down that. Okay. And at that point, you never saw Nikki again, I assume? No. Okay. Perhaps in an effort to humanize their client to the jury, the defense goes on to ask Bogdanov why he fled to Ukraine. He said he'd blamed his drinking for the murder and went to Europe to get sober. But while he was there, he claimed he began having extreme panic attacks. He allegedly started having nightmares about the murder, seeing Nikki's face in his sleep. He claims this drove him to drinking once again, but to an even greater degree of excess than before. 
It's unclear if any of this is actually true, but the prosecution would soon have their opportunity to question Bogdanov, exposing the kind of person he truly was in the process. So you didn't go to the Ukraine for any type of alcohol treatment program? I went there to get, sorry for lack of a better expression, to get my shit together. I was, I was an emotional wreck. So you, you fled there because you were afraid of being caught for what happened to Nikki, right? Initially, initially, yes. Okay. That was the one and only reason you were buying a flight and then leaving an hour later, right? That's not what I just told you. This is a picture of Nikki, right? Yes. This is a picture of the person you killed, right? Objection argumentative. Overruled. Not intentionally. This is the person that you killed, right? It's the person that died, but not intentionally. This is the person that you strangled to death, right? It's the person that I was restraining from keeping my gun and that died. Your strangulation killed her, correct? I suppose. Well, nothing else killed her, right? Right? I suppose. You suppose or that's accurate? Yes, well. Your strangulation ended her life, yes or no? Yes. You don't like gay and transgender people, right? What? You don't like gay and transgender people, correct? Not that I don't like him. I don't agree with the lifestyle. I don't think it's very wholesome. So they are not wholesome people to you. You were terrified of the thought of someone else thinking that you were gay if they found out what happened between you and Nikki. Well, the Russian community isn't really have doesn't take in the gay community with open arms. Yeah, so it would be really bad for you if anyone ever found out about this, right? It would be humiliating. I would probably be shunned. Yeah, you would be an outcast in your community, right? Yes. Your family would not talk to you? Oh, they'd still talk to me. They're my family, but... It wouldn't be the same, would it? Probably not. It was the clear intent of the state to prove to the jury that David Bogdanov was essentially a bigot who had a strong dislike for gay and trans people. And though he skirted the line in admitting this openly himself in court, he had absolutely no reservations in admitting how he found their, quote, lifestyle disgusting and unwholesome. This was important in establishing his potential motive for the killing. It was the prosecution's belief that Bogdanov was so angry that he had been deceived by the very kind of person he so openly despised that murder was tragically the outcome. Due to Bogdanov's religious background and rigid family beliefs, he could not let anyone find out that this event occurred. He simply could not endure or live down that kind of embarrassment, as he suggested while openly weeping in court. Therefore, he chose to dispose of Nikki's body and carry on with life as though nothing ever happened. Overall, it was the prosecution's stance all along that Nikki was killed solely because she was trans, not because she ever imposed any realistic threat toward David Bogdanov. In the end, it would be up to the jury to decide, and after less than two weeks, a unanimous verdict had been reached. On August 27, 2021, 27-year-old David Bogdanov was found guilty of second-degree murder 
and malicious harassment in the death of Nikki Kuhnhausen. A few weeks later, he was sentenced to the maximum allowable term for the convictions, 19 and a half years in prison. In the state of Washington, a point system is used during the sentencing phase of criminal trials. And the fact that David Bogdanov did not have any significant points or prior criminal history weighed greatly in determining how much prison time could actually be handed down. While a 19 and a half year sentence doesn't seem adequate in comparison to a human life lost, there were some positive changes that came as a result of this case. On March 5th, 2020, Governor Jay Inslee signed the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act into law. The legislation was designed to prevent defendants who were charged with violent crimes from using sexual orientation as part of their defense. This is more commonly known as the gay or trans panic defense. While Bogdanov did claim self-defense in this case, there was a lot of gray area in debate as to how his legal representation skated this thin line. Regardless, Nikki's law will abolish this legal strategy altogether and prevent it from ever being used again in the state of Washington. The Justice for Nikki Task Force played a pivotal role in bringing these issues to the forefront and essentially pushing this law through their local government. One of the founders of Nikki's task force, Lyndon Walls, is someone who believes that because legal strategies such as the gay trans panic defense still exist, there is still much work to be done. Yeah, my name is Lyndon Walls and I live in Vancouver, Washington, a suburb of Portland, Oregon. We were grateful to have the opportunity to speak with Lyndon about their involvement in this case, the great loss that occurred, and also what's been accomplished since as well. Lyndon spends a great deal of personal time in Vancouver helping people in the transgender community to feel safe. Professionally, Lyndon works as a digital marketing coordinator organizing social media campaigns for small and medium-sized businesses in and around the city. We were curious about how Lyndon first learned of Nikki Kuhnhausen and when it was they decided to get involved. I first heard about Nikki, Nikki missing when Lisa filed a police report and a local organization started helping flyer the area. So that was early June. For me, the drive to get involved with Nikki's case was knowing that a local trans teen had gone missing and I got involved after her remains had been found. So her remains were found and then the task force kind of was formed, headed up by Devin Davis and Devin reached out to me. We had lunch and she was like, I need your help. So I got involved because of my love for the Vancouver community and the Portland community and wanting to make sure the trans story was heard, that that was a part of the prosecution's understanding of the case because initially David was not charged with a hate crime. He was initially only charged with murder. After teaming up with Devin Davis and with Lyndon's professional background and capturing eyes via online marketing, the murder of a 17-year-old transgender woman started getting a lot of attention as intended. Nikki's task force wouldn't allow her murder to be ignored. Posthumously, Nikki Kuhnhausen would become the vehicle of awareness for the already volatile crime rate toward gay and trans people in America. Lyndon expands on why it was so important to be vocal and vigilant, believing that a precedent needed to be set. Fortunately for a lot of trans people who are murdered, people aren't even 
found. And so there is no prosecution in a lot of cases. So, you know, when, when the murder of a trans person does go to trial, oftentimes it is a really gray area. Did this happen because this person was trans or did this happen because of another circumstance? And so a lot of times these types of trials get acquitted or um, end in a mistrial. This gray area brings us back to the quote, trans panic defense, and if Bogdanov actually used it or not. We wanted to get Lyndon's thoughts on the matter. Well, because Nikki's law wasn't passed until after the murder happened, he could use that defense if he wanted, and there wasn't anything that could go back and retroactively stop that. You know, it's very thin line on whether or not he used it. And that's, I guess, what a lot of people end up talking about is, did he use a veiled version of the transpanic defense or did he truly use a self-defense defense? We also discussed David Bogdanov's testimony. Lyndon made the observation that Bogdanov constantly brought up religion, almost as a way of justifying or at least explaining his actions. A feeble attempt to connect with the jury seems to be the overall consensus here. If you listen to David's full testimony, a lot of it, uh, he talks about his religious beliefs um, and how that motivated his worldview on gay and queer people. It was a, a Hail Mary, I guess, to maybe hopefully get some people to believe him, but. There are undoubtedly many religions that still openly denounce or do not accept gay or trans lifestyles and people. However, thou shall not kill is a pretty universal ideology, on that David perhaps missed or slept through in Bible study. Religious or not, if you murder someone, gay, trans, or straight, and you're found guilty for that crime, you go to prison. Regardless, we wanted to gain Lyndon's perspective on the sentencing in this case as someone who was there as it all unfolded? So I think amongst the community, the feeling was in the, in the Nikki task force, at least we knew that, that this was best case scenario was that 19 and a half years was the most that the judge would be able to sentence him to if he was found guilty on both counts. Um, He didn't have any other aggravated kind of stuff. He didn't have any other criminal record that pushed him over to getting more time. So because he had never been found guilty of anything and just had minor traffic infractions, you know, Washington is on a sentencing schedule that's based on prior offenses. So he got the extent of what was available to be given to him. And the judge, I think, kind of expressed I perceived him to have expressed in his closing remarks before the sentencing how dark and vicious this murder was um, and that he wished that he could give him more time. And he gave him the extent because there was no remorse. Um, He was offered a chance to stand up and talk to the family or the community. And he didn't even say no, sir. When the judge addressed him, he just said, nah. (laughs) And to me, that was like, wow, he has zero remorse or even care for how the community is feeling about what happened. There's, there's no regret in, his, in anywhere in him. We also asked Lyndon about the malicious harassment charge in Washington state, which really is a dressed up and more presentable phrase for the term hate crime. 
Linden expressed their personal opinion on changes that still need to be made in Vancouver and beyond in regards to the actual penalties associated with this particular type of charge. Yeah, and one of the things that I would love to see in Washington, and this isn't something that the task force necessarily, well, this is not something the task force is behind, but something that I would like to see in Washington state is a more robust hate crime law because malicious harassment, uh, if you look at the definition, doesn't actually include death. It's that someone's property was destroyed, that someone experienced a verbal or physical assault, but it doesn't address death, which is one of the parts that I, I see in being such the, the low sentence, the malicious harassment only added a year and a half to his sentence. It didn't actually add much time. And so when people are like, he was found guilty of a hate crime, that gets really tricky because just because malicious harassment is a hate crime in Washington state doesn't mean it's the same as what we think of when we think of a hate crime at, at the federal level. Through so much pain and trauma, we wanted to learn more about the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel, or if there even was one. The change that did occur as a result of this tragedy was Nikki's Law, and Lyndon takes us through the process of how it came to be and how it is affecting communities nationwide to this very day. So the bill that was passed in Nikki's name originally had been brought forward by some local commissioners in Washington state. And it stalled out initially because everyone voting Democrat and Republican all said, we don't have a need for this. This doesn't happen in our state. We don't need a bill that bans something that's never happened. And it was the next year that Nikki went missing and they did a a rush push through it to get it passed into law in early 2020. Since Nikki's law passed in Washington state, Several other states have also followed suit, banning the gay or trans panic defense altogether. And while the majority of states in the U.S. still allow this defense, advocacy groups such as the Justice for Nikki Task Force are currently and actively pushing to end the legal strategy throughout the country entirely. Lyndon Walls has also since become the spokesperson for Nikki's family, relating to all things press, media, and this very podcast interview. Lyndon remains close with Nikki's mother to this day. Getting involved with them came about because I don't mind supporting them in this way. Um, Talking to people about this is not nearly as triggering to me as it is to them. And if I can take any of that burden off of Lisa and Nikki's siblings, then I'm happy to do so. Lyndon went on to tell us that things haven't gotten any easier for Lisa or Nikki's family. After Nikki was murdered, her husband, Nikki's father, contracted COVID-19. With prior health complications, he would tragically pass away due to the severity of his illness. Before our discussion came to a close, we wanted to get Lyndon's thoughts on one last thing. We wanted to gain a better understanding of what the root of this particular vein of violence might be where it comes from, and why gay and trans individuals, specifically people of color, are more at risk. The main point we both arrived at is that these crimes stem from fear. When we strip down a very complex issue to its most basic form, that's ultimately what it seems to boil down to. 
the trans community as a whole is susceptible to more aggression and hate because culturally the trans community is still very misunderstood or there isn't a cultural understanding of transgender people or people who may live in the spectrum of gender instead of the binaries of gender. So culturally, it's something that's not known. And often as humans, we tend to be scared of things that are unknown to us. It's also human nature to other and to then cut off from other. You know, we're scared of what's new. Understanding of personhood versus presentation leads to more violence and more hate. David Bogdanov admitted that he rejected gay and trans people, aside from ever meeting Nikki Kuhnhausen. He was disgusted by the thought of a trans person, never mind mistakenly taking part in a sex act with one. Nikki misrepresented herself to a man she didn't know. There's no denying that this added to the already great threat against her. However, the fact of the matter is, David killed her because she was trans. He had the right to be angry. He had the right to be appalled even. He even had the right to carry out a life as someone who openly hated, despised, or was disgusted by gay and trans people, from a legal perspective if those are his prerogatives. But instead, he chose to murder the person he felt deceived him. He then chose to dump her body and to leave her family grieving and wondering where she had disappeared to for over six months. So where does the concept of fear come in? According to the jury, David didn't fear Nikki physically, like he so claimed in court. David Bogdanov feared the idea of someone like Nikki. See, he believed a person like Nikki Kuhnhausen is lesser or inferior, effectively a second-class citizen. Someone like Nikki to David is not equal. Why not? Well, you can run the gauntlet of reasons. Looking back to the way he was raised, his participation in and the views of the church, or his shared bigoted values among his family and peer groups. The list goes on, but at the core, David simply doesn't understand and is ignorant. David is uneducated. He doesn't get gay or trans people and never took the time to consider that people might be different from him. That inability to accept these differences on a human level is essentially what manifested into a hateful rage, which in turn eventually resulted in a homicide. Lyndon Walls believes that information is key and urges anyone that may be uninformed regarding their gay and trans community to do their due diligence. Take the time to research and learn. And quite frankly, as adults, that is the responsibility of the individual and no one else. It shouldn't be a surprise that gay and trans people exist. Quite frankly, it's saddening even having to state that obvious fact. But the more effort we make as a society to understand those who may be seen as different, the less room there inevitably will be for hatred. Nikki Kuhnhausen wasn't a perfect person. The odds were stacked against her before she ever met David Bogdanov. She had a difficult life, but she was still a kid. Gone forever at just 17 years old, Nikki Kuhnhausen will never have the opportunity to better her situation. 
After everything is all said and done at the end of the day, we're all human. And perhaps if David Bogdanov viewed Nikki Kuhnhausen in this way, she would still be alive today. I think a lot of it is local education. You know, we have the access to the internet at our fingertips. And if someone is listening to this podcast, then I would encourage them to do some Googling to understand what the term trans man and trans woman mean, what um, it means to be non-binary or agender, and just try and understand the umbrella that trans people are living under. You know, almost every city has a queer center or a, a place where gay and queer people can come together and celebrate. And oftentimes those groups, you know, they, those centers have groups or different places for community members and allies. Um, a lot of that is getting involved in the community, getting to know trans and gay people that your kids already go to school with their parents. Like, you know, they're even in small rural towns, there are gay people, there are trans people. So educating yourself and your children uh, about loving themselves and others that they meet, regardless of what shape or form that they take, that's the only way we can make a better society is, is pushing love and extending love where there is otherwise hate or misunderstanding and aggression. <laughs>